Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. This podcast is going to be the two of us geeking out about books, movies, TV shows, comics, and why it all matters. And you'll be able to find us every two weeks on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that fine podcasts are made available. One of the things that I've been really obsessing about for the last couple weeks, and I know I've chewed your ear off about this already a lot, Charlie, is the fact that the Russian interference in the U.S. elections and the ongoing sort of Russian bot drama on Facebook and Twitter feels science fictional. It feels like we're at a point in history where a lot of the stuff that we used to fantasize about in science fiction in the mid 20th century is now true. And and that's kind of a revelation for a lot of people. And I don't I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, oh, Trump is pretending like it's not real. I mean that I think a lot of us are genuinely surprised, even though we kind of suspected it, that, you know, robots are basically <laughs> influencing our political beliefs. Yeah. And the walls of reality are sort of breaking down under this onslaught of unreality created by these pre-programmed bots that spread their own version of events. It is a very science fictional scenario in which it feels sort of like a Philip K. Dick novel or some kind of 1960s kind of head trip kind of movie with lots of swishy, swirly lights and (laughs) colors, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a little bit uh, Hunger Games too, although less overt. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting about this is that it's not the kind of propaganda that we're used to, which I do think is more of a Hunger Games model. Yeah, it's like the blending of social media and uh, the kind of Hunger Games style propaganda, which is kind of the entertainment industrial complex being turned towards propaganda. And just a general sense of like, nothing is real. Let us bombard you with weirdness. Yeah. And it was it really was brought home to me when um, after the uh, shooting at the Florida high school, suddenly Russian bots were being, you know, journalists were tracking how Russian bots immediately jumped into the fray with their own hashtags and were really trying to influence the conversation. And we know now from, uh, you know, the FBI report that there's an incredibly sophisticated operation behind these bots. There's actually people, it's not just bots kind of running wild, but people are thinking uh, very carefully about how to influence American opinions uh, using Twitter and Facebook and, you know, a couple of other places. Yeah, it's a really sophisticated social engineering system that targets our kind of prejudices and weak points and divisions with like surgical skill. And it really shows that you can get people to believe all kinds of things that play to their prejudices, which is something that science fiction has warned us about for a long time. I think science fiction has a long track record of warning that, you know, human bias and human kind of ignorance can be weaponized. And I think we're seeing that now in a really new way. And it's, it is very science fictional and scary. It's funny because we've all had this model in our heads from the novel 1984, which it's kind of a cliche to bring it up in this context, but it's true. It's basically one of the premier 
science fiction novels or science fiction stories about propaganda and how it works. And it's also, as many people have pointed out, a kind of early social media nightmare. The forces of darkness and the treasonable maggots who collaborate with them must, can, and will be wiped from the face of the earth. We must crush them. We must smash them. We must stamp them out. The telescreen talks to you and you can talk to it. And it is true that it's 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 intended to be basically television, but it's interactive television and it's a, it's a surveillance device. It's not just something that is dumb in your room. You can, you know, that you watch. So I feel like there are a lot of there's a lot of models that we get of how how propaganda will work from that novel in the mid-century um there were also science fiction writers who were working specifically with intelligence agencies to create psychological warfare. And famously, the science fiction author known as Cordwainer Smith, who's probably best known for his short story called Scanners Live in Vain, which you can find for free online. I highly recommend you read it. It's really intense. Um, it's about uh, people who go on deep space missions and sort of what it does to their minds. But He worked for um, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies during World War II uh, under his real name, Paul Leinbarger, and he wrote a book called Psychological Warfare that was used by the military, and it was used to um, confuse troops overseas that were um, fighting on the side of the Japanese and that were um, easily able to be swayed in some ways by propaganda written in their own language. And so he, I mean, science fiction helped create this kind of subtle propaganda that we're seeing now from Russia, which to me is really weird. Yeah. And I just want to bring it back to sort of Philip K. Dick and like this whole sort of strand of 1960s science fiction. I think that the classic mode of propaganda is that it will dehumanize us and like the combination of universal surveillance and themes like that the loudspeakers spitting out all these slogans at us will rob us of our individuality and turn us into bald pajama wearing, (laughs) you know, conformist uh, drones. But what actually happens is that we're, it targets us very individually. And this notion of like reality kind of falling apart is something that's very individualized and aimed at kind of taking people apart on the personal level in order to make them vulnerable to control. And I think that's a very different kind of thing that you see in some of this sort of trippy 60s stuff, like Philip K. Dick, some of Philip K. Dick's novels, but also some other stuff. I love that idea of a sort of a personalized propaganda, because that is what we're getting on Facebook, is we're seeing that people were specifically targeted, um, you know, in a, in a very uh, granular way. And it isn't, yeah, it isn't that loudspeaker model, which again, not to keep picking on Hunger Games, but I feel like that's kind of where Hunger Games leaves us is with a feeling that like there's going to be propaganda coming to us from one place from the Capitol and it will be broadcast on loudspeakers or on television and we will all see the same propaganda. And that's not what's happening. We're not seeing that. This is Capitol TV. Since the dark days, Our great nation has known only peace. Ours is an elegant system, conceived to nourish and protect. The other thing about it is that 
propaganda in like the mid 20th century when, you know, Cordwainer Smith was coming up with psychological warfare um, was always viewed as being kind of dreary and depressing. Like that's what we see in George Orwell too, where it's this kind of, oh, they've taken away all the pretty parts of language and they're Mm -hmm. just, you know, lying to us. But that's not what propaganda is. It's actually super entertaining. And that's what I loved about the episode of um, Black Mirror called The Waldo Moment. Right. And, you know, that's a such a great episode. And it's about this guy who creates this sort of cartoon character who he can control through like a little, you know, microphone. And it's kind of like it's it's almost copying his movements. And yeah, his, it's like a mocap. It's like a mocap cre- character. And it it's just this kind of weird subversive cartoon guy, but it ends up becoming a political force and destabilizing actual political figures. And the guy who creates it can't control it in the end. It ends up kind of getting out of his control and becoming kind of the wedge that leads to political, you know, instability and, and destruction. Yeah, it leads to, it seems like at the end of that episode that Britain has become a kind of, you know, Brexit nightmare. It's this sort of police state. And I just, you know, I, I think this is a big theme in, in Black Mirror generally where entertainment or um, cultural commentary that's intended to be subversive becomes a tool of state power to, um, to rob us of our, of our freedom. And so I feel like that's one of the things that's scary about propaganda as entertainment because we think of entertainment as something that kind of rescues us from yeah it's an escape it's, it's benign. an escape it's happy. yeah it's like you know escaping into a happy fun thrilling world of like you know bright colors and you know cool stuff and i think that a lot of what attracts us to these giant escapist stories about like swashbuckling heroes who triumph over evil can also be weaponized and twisted into something xenophobic and paranoid and kind of you know, bigoted against people who we can define as the other or the enemy. And that's something that's a vulnerability in our kind of love of, of stories of good and evil and, and triumph and all the things that make entertainment escapist and fun for us also make it an ideal vehicle for propaganda. It's so funny because I was thinking of The Matrix about in, in relation to this theme, because of course The Matrix is sort of about propaganda and all of the people are like stuck in this illusion. But The film itself, uh, maybe the whole series, you know, it was intended as social criticism. Like the film is criticizing kind of the horror of our lives and like, you know, how people are kind of ruled by um, just wanting to get the next stake instead of wanting to help people escape from slavery. Um, And, you know, uh, the Wachowskis deliberately include um, in in the second movie, they have Cornell West, who's a famous uh, Marxist and anti-racist commentator. He's in there just kind of as a character. And they kind of throw in a lot of stuff that makes it clear that they're kind of on the lefty side of the spectrum. And then the biggest cultural legacy of that film today is the red pill, which is a term that's you know comes from a Reddit community, but has now really spread far beyond that to describe um, 
you know, men's rights activists and talk about how, you know, if you take the red pill, you kind of wake up to understanding how, you know, women are terrible and men are awesome and a variety of other things. And I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to reduce the complexity of the red pill uh, culture to just that, because I'm sure it's a lot more than that. But it's a very weird cultural turn that this kind of lefty alternative film that's all about, you know, yay, people of color fighting against the terrible machine world um, has become like, it's kind of led to this rallying cry for a very reactionary right wing movement. But that's actually kind of plays into what I was saying, which is that, you know, everybody wants to see themselves as the hero in their story. And these kinds of stories about breaking free from programming and breaking free from the man and like freeing yourself can easily be turned around. And like the people who support, you know, our government the most uh, vituperatively nowadays uh, are also the ones who see themselves as the most oppressed and the most discriminated against and the most, uh, you know, there's this whole meme in right wing circles that Christians and conservatives are constantly being discriminated against, which, you know, has a grain of truth to it, but also is kind of massively exaggerated and magnified to turn into a, a story in which they're the kind of underdog fighting against something unstoppable and powerful and that's and that's propaganda just as of course the other side the liberal side has its propaganda about how it's beleaguered and um and that's kind of what we're talking about here is how you know propaganda and these stories can fit whatever political persuasion that you have and they can be even if you as a filmmaker say if you're the wachowskis and you're trying to make a movie that's a kind of a liberal movie, that doesn't mean that people will see it that way and people can can kind of appropriate it as they want. Um, what, what do you think are some really like good examples of how um, propaganda is being handled in science fiction? Like what's a, you, you had talked to me earlier about George Saunders being like a big... Yeah, I mean, I think if you read George Saunders' short fiction, not so much his novel Lincoln and the Bardo, but a lot of his short fiction has long passages of authority figures and corporate leaders and politicians like spouting these long paragraphs of kind of double think and double speak that include like self-justifications and weaseling out of the reality of what's going on. And often in these George Saunders stories, there's something really horrible and amoral and brutal and awful going on at the core of it that our characters are being co-opted into taking part in. And part of how that happens is that they're just sort of bludgeoned into kind of accepting terrible things because of these speeches that they're given and some of these like weird catchphrases that they're taught. And I feel like he's drawing on a long tradition of like Kafka-esque on a slightly surreal fiction to kind of get at that way in which people are co-opted and controlled by these messages. I think one of the big themes that you see in science fiction about propaganda is that there's this sort of surreal aspect to it. And we see this, of course, in Philip K. Dick, where he has characters who are Um, you know, either going crazy or they're on drugs or both. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me? And part of that is because they're living in a culture. These characters are often living in futuristic worlds where they're being bombarded by advertisements and lots of other kinds of propaganda. And what you were saying about Saunders was making me think about how Science fiction about mind control is often about propaganda. It's about how do you co-opt someone's mind? How do you make them think thoughts that they wouldn't have thought before? Yeah, and I think that there's always like the kind of blurred lines between 
advertising, social media, propaganda, and mind control. They all kind of blur together in science fiction and I think in real life to a large extent. We've learned that it's really easy to kind of change people's minds just by bombarding them with messages that change their idea of what is normal and what the frame of reality is. And, you know, to some extent, all propaganda is science fiction because it's about positing an alternate world and an alternate history in which certain people are right and certain people are wrong or certain things are normal and acceptable. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is to, to create propaganda is in a sense to write science fiction. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of, again, gets back to 1984, where part of the job that the main character is doing, Winston Smith, is changing history and, and altering how we remember things. Um, I was thinking of uh, They Live, which is such a yeah, great... Yeah, we just rewatched that recently, yeah. Yeah, and that's a really great example of kind of combining advertising and mind control and, and of course, uh, some wrestling uh, as well. There's some, a lot of wrestling in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, and they live, that is the sort of consumer conformist worldview where all of the ads turn out to be actually saying consume, reproduce, obey, and it's just sort of this constant like stream of messages that are designed to kind of turn Roddy, Rowdy Roddy Piper into obedient Roddy Piper. <laughs> Go everywhere! Maybe they can see Alley Fifth and Spring. Now hold on. You ain't the first son of a bitch to wake up out of their dream. But it's funny because there's a a sort of a state power behind those ads. And one of the things I think that's interesting about Philip K. Dick um, and some earlier science fiction that I think influenced him, like The Space Merchants, for example, which is a great 1950s novel that you should all read, um, is that it's advertised. It's sort of capitalist propaganda. Like a lot of it is advertising. Um, certainly it's true that in Dick, we do see also like nefarious government agencies and things like that. But I think in something like They Live, which is also, I think, influenced by Dick, um, you know, all of these ads that would normally be, you know, for Crest or for, you know, Ford or whatever they were buying in the 80s, um, that it all turns out to be from this weird alien state power. So it turns out that the government is using capitalist advertising to sell us on this kind of new state power. But I think there's other science fiction. This is a long-winded way of saying, I think some science fiction is more concerned with capitalist propaganda and other kinds of science fiction, like, for example, 1984, are mostly con concerned with government propaganda, if that makes sense. But I think yeah. they are, they get merged. They and do. I and, and I think that, you know, in fact, you know, the mid 20th century was the rise of totalitarianism and the rise of these like giant statist regimes in Russia, in China, elsewhere that were filling every space with propaganda about, you know, Chairman Mao or Stalin or about the the party and how to serve, how to follow the party. And, you know, the past like 30 or 40 years have been more of the rise of corporatism and international capitalism as our new kind of guiding regime and for, for the entire world. Yeah. And so those are the people who are kind of most eager to propagandize us. And the line between advertising, all advertising is propaganda to some extent. because It's, it's absolutely, yeah. it's 100% propaganda, right? And like you said, it is science fiction. It's about selling you on a fantasy oftentimes. And mm -hmm. I mean, and so is government propaganda. Yeah. Advertising is like, this is what life should look like. This is what life does look like. If you don't look like the people in this ad, there's something maybe wrong with you. <laughs> no, no. You can just buy an iPhone and then you'll look like them. Right, right. <laughs> Listen to YouTube on your iPhone and everything will be <laughs> oh, fine. Oh, no.
Invasion of the Body Snatchers really is kind of the ultimate mind control movie because people are being replaced with these aliens who are kind of these mindless conformists. We don't really know what their guiding principle is, but uh, audiences at the time really felt like it was about the communist menace. And I think that was definitely the intention of the filmmakers, too, is that it's just a fear that you will your mind will be usurped and and then your culture will be usurped and then you know you'll you'll be part of this kind of blob of of unthinking obedient creatures and i i think that fear um and that image of people's minds being taken away from their bodies basically um is still all over the place in science fiction yeah the loss of individuality the loss of selfhood of personhood the conformity kind of taking over everything. That Those are huge themes in science fiction. It's part of what science fiction often kind of rails against. Inv- individualism is very much built into the DNA of science fiction on a very deep level. Well, at least in the in the West it is. Yeah, yeah. Western science fiction, the Western yeah. science fiction tradition is all about the individual and humanism and our human potential. And, you know, to some extent, the idea is that propaganda will rob us of that and will turn us into drones or, you know, again, bald people in pajamas. (laughs) But also it's, I think, you know, it reflects a real fear that we have in the West uh, where we do value individualism, at least in the United States, that's a big thing. You know, we're all supposed to think individualism is super awesome. Um, But at the same time, we know that our minds can be changed. Mm -hmm. We know that we don't always control our own thoughts. And when we see a story that's really persuasive or um, hear a speech that's really moving, um, it can, in fact, remind us that we aren't really just individuals. We're also part of a community and a group. And that can be really awesome, but it can also mean that you end up believing in something that kind of is harmful. And I... Did you read the Tripods novels growing up? I watched the TV show, but I've never seen the the movie. The, I've never read the books. But you know what, I, what they're about? Yeah. They're, it was this series that um, I think must have influenced Scott Westerfeld's Uglies books. Um, I'm sure they did, yeah. Yeah, it's about kids in a future Britain who are having um, skull caps implanted that control their minds. And so in order to grow up, you have to like get the skull cap. Um, which is kind of, I mean, that's sort of what's happening in uglies too. They're not actually getting skull caps, but they're getting kind of like brain surgery and Mm -hmm. plastic surgery to make them, uh, more obedient. And I think that's, you know, again, that idea that the process of growing up is a process of having stuff installed in your brain that makes you conform, Mm -hmm. um, is we just see that all over the place. Yeah, and propaganda is also a huge theme in superhero stories, and particularly superheroes themselves are kind of artifacts of propaganda. Captain America with his patriotic costume is created as kind of a symbol of America and values, and during World War II, he's kind of sent out to inspire people, and pretty much... Wonder Woman was fighting the Nazis. Yeah, and pretty much every superhero is kind of designed to represent a worldview or, or to kind of... Uh, justify themselves partly through their costume and their their great name and their whole like mythology. And, you know, superhero stories are constantly wrestling with the idea of propaganda. Tonight, I am going to maintain order in Gotham City. You are going to help me. But not with these. These are loud and clumsy. These are the weapons of cowards. Our weapons are precise and quiet. 
In time, I will teach them to you. But for tonight, you will rely on your brains and your fists. Tonight, we are the law. Tonight, I am the law. One of the biggest problems Batman always has in Batman stories is that people don't understand him and that, you know, in The Dark Knight Returns, you see these TV screens where people are talking about him and saying negative things about him or kind of discussing him. And I feel like that pops up a lot in Batman stories that like the media is kind of against him. And that it's, easy, it's a smear campaign. It's fake news about Yeah, Batman. there's like fake Batman news. And that Batman, part of what he has to do is, is protect himself against being misunderstood by the masses who are being fed all of this stuff. And Batman, meanwhile, doesn't want to be understood. He wants to be an urban legend. <laughs> um, but I feel like a lot of superheroes are constantly trying to control their image and constantly trying to fight against various forms of propaganda that for, that cause them to be misunderstood. Yeah, and I mean, we see this a lot, like in the in the current Marvel movies. You know, they they're having a big problem with. Um, their branding, basically, their their image has been tarnished because they've been wrecking cities. They, you know, came really late to the fight at the UN, and like, you know, they they've just they've had a lot of mistakes. And yeah, and Spider Man. One of the big classic conflicts in Spider Man is that he is helping to create anti Spider Man propaganda while also being Spider-Man. And that's his constant like, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but my boss, J. Jonah Jameson, just wants pictures that make Spider-Man look bad so that he can have headlines that say Spider-Man is a menace. And I have to do it because my Aunt May needs medicine. I think it's interesting because the superheroes come out of fighting fascism. They originally created to fight back against the Nazis and against the rise of global fascism. But then in a post-World War II secular kind of civilian world, they are actually fighting against the media and like the way that they're portrayed in, in media. And they actually sometimes... And they're participating in media. And they're of participating course, Superman in media. is also, you know, part of the media. And yeah. Supergirl like works for a blog now. <laughs> yeah, Supergirl now works for Catco Media, which is like the weirdest, like there are giant cats in the Catco office. It's like giant pur- pink purple cats. It, that is not weird. I mean, yeah, we've, we've, we've I, been I feel like we've, offices we've worked in places that had that. weird decorations. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like they're entangled in the media and... To some extent, superheroes are often kind of portrayed as being fascists now in their attempt For sure, to kind yeah. of like break free from the constraints of like what people will think about them. They're forced to do extreme things in order to, to get the job done because people don't understand them and won't support them. And that kind of pushes them to fascism. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that kind of puts an interesting spin on maybe why superhero movies and TV shows are so popular right now, because we're kind of living in the golden age of propaganda. I mean, yeah. social, social media is the perfect propaganda machine, as indeed George Orwell predicted <laughs> that yeah. interactive TV would be uh, the best way to control the masses. And it makes me also think about the popularity of zombie stories, the never ending popularity of zombie stories. I mean, maybe they're finally about to not be popular anymore. But um, of course, zombies are also a great metaphor for people who are being controlled by, you know, alien thoughts or baser instincts. Um, You know, Dawn of the Dead, of course, famously is about zombies going to the mall um and you know that was a clear commentary on on kind of mindless consumerism um and i think 
as zombie stories have grown in popularity, we've seen a lot of different examples of how, um, you know, fighting zombies is kind of trying to fight for individualism. It's trying to fight against um, a kind of mindless obedience or a mindless, um, you know, love of cities or something like that. Yeah, the I don't zombies, know why zombies always go into cities, but zombies are the masses. They're the kind of rampaging masses that you can't really talk to because they're just like a herd of people who just won't even listen to you and they just keep moving forward and they all have the same thought on their mind. They don't think for themselves. And Feed, I think, yeah, consume. eat brains, it's you good. know. It goes, right, it goes right back to they live, right? Consume, yeah. consume. I feel like there is a there is a connection there. And yeah, and I think that, you know, both superhero stories and zombie stories are about the individual and society and we root for the individual against society all the time, but that also is a form of propaganda because we want to think that we're the individual and that whatever we believe in, whether it's, you know, that we support Donald Trump or that we hate Donald Trump, that's us fighting against this mass of people who are mm-hmm. against us. And so, yeah, those those kinds of stories are popular right now because we feel as though our individuality is being kind of threatened by this yeah. groupthink. We all we all feel under siege. I mean, I think that's again, you know, crosses political lines for sure. That I think everyone is feeling like whether their candidate is in office or not, um, or their beloved politician is has won or not. Um, I think we all feel like we're fighting some crazy tide that we don't understand where it's coming from. Yeah, it's anxiety producing. And actually, I want to talk for just a second about like the film trilogy that I feel like has become super influential or super important in the Trump era, which is the Purge films, um, which I, how many of them have there been now? I think there's about to be a fourth one coming out this summer. And those are movies that basically kind of pick up the Paul Verhoeven model of propaganda in movies that I Paul know. Verhoeven who did Robocop and Starship Troopers and Total the original Total Recall. Right. And Paul Verhoeven always has these like really kind of campy, ridiculous propaganda videos that kind of pop up where it's Especially like, in Starship Troopers. Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. (laughs) They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Yeah, and it's just kind of like really in your face and ridiculous and like, you know, kind of over the top. And the Purge movies are that times a hundred. Like these people are sitting there watching these like super like stars and stripes bathed videos about the purge and for those who are new to the wonder that is the purge movies the purge takes place in a future america where crime is legal once a year for basically i think 12 hours from like midnight till no i don't know from like 8 p.m to overnight overnight yeah one night a year crime is legal and the first movie was kind of a little bit incoherent it's a home invasion movie about like oh there are people getting inside the house but the second movie kind of takes it much further into showing that really the purpose behind the purge is to let rich people hunt and kill poor people, which is often a popular pastime of the rich in many movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that happens thing... in Hostel too, by the way, my beloved torture porn film. Yeah, but the purge movies are just crammed full of weird propaganda and weird videos about like the American way and how like going out and hunting your neighbors to death is the American thing to do. And it's very dark and satirical and warped. And 
fully like in the Verhoeven tradition of like over the top kind of messages. And it feels like so creepily relevant right now with the new debates over gun control in this country, because this is, I mean, the purge is the, the purge series is kind of about the logical extreme of the gun rights position, everyone with a gun. And then one night a year, we all just get to use them on each other. And you know, whoever wins is the person who's alive at the end. Yeah, and it's usually the people who can afford the really nice guns and the armored vehicles. Yeah, and the armored and cars. And all of that stuff. It's very much about class, but it's also about our obsession with guns and violence, for sure. And it, you know... But yeah. I love the idea that it kind of reveals this hidden class um, bias underneath all of that stuff, because that's something that we rarely hear about in gun debates, is how there's actually, you know, if you're wealthy enough to live... Uh, in a place where you can protect yourself, then, you know, that's great. You have a gun, whatever. But Gated it's, community. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, for people who are, um, you know, in a more vulnerable position, um, you know, having a gun really might not do that much good and, and indeed might do harm. Um, so we've been talking a lot, pretty explicitly, actually, about um, U.S. politics throughout uh, this episode. And I wanted to end by asking you, Charlie, what do you think? Has science fiction given us um, any good advice about dealing with propaganda? Like, what do we learn from science fiction about how to handle, um, you know, Russian bots trying to control our minds? Or Or, or Sinclair Media, which now owns TV stations across the U.S. and actually, like, broadcasts, like, segments that are pure propaganda for the Republicans. Yeah, so what what do we learn from science fiction about how to handle that? I mean... I mean, I think good science fiction, the best science fiction, teaches us a certain amount of skepticism and hopefully helps us to understand that the the messages that appeal to us the most or that make us feel the most, you know, virtuous and happy might be the ones that we should interrogate, but also just that... Yeah, it might be the worst messages. Yeah, and also just that it's it's good to kind of try to shut that stuff out and think for yourself. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to remember the message of... Um, the Waldo moment from Black Mirror, which is that sometimes even when you're creating um, a piece of art or writing that feels subversive and satirical, it might turn out to actually be something that you can weaponize as propaganda from the other side. Pepe the frog. Pepe the frog, whatever. You know, it doesn't, um, you know, the point is that you sometimes think you're being really smart with your social criticism, but actually, you know, you're just creating more um, more propaganda or yeah. more, more memes. Like Judge Dredd. Judge Dredd started out as a satire of authoritarianism and, and excessive police brutality. And then he became incredibly popular as the embodiment of those things among people who celebrate that. Inhabitants of Peach Trees. This is Judge Dredd. Let him talk. In case you people have forgotten, this block operates under the same rules as the rest of the city. Mama is not the law. I am the law. Yeah, and it's interesting because when we see science fiction about propaganda or mind control, um, where people kind of throw off the yoke, um, sometimes the solutions are not that great. Like, you know, to go back to the Hunger Games, I mean, it's kind of seize control of the means of propagandizing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very 
unclear whether Katniss is really going to be all that much better. I mean, sure, she's nice. We like her. She saved that chick one time. Well, actually, I mean, the Hunger Games movies end with, or the books and the movies end with a very much darker note because the people who take over after the bad guy who depose President Snow actually turn out to be just as bad as him. And there's no good authority in those movies. Yeah, and they've turned Katniss into their meme. Basically, she was a rebel who has now become a meme for a resistance, which is perhaps no better. So um, and also I was thinking um, about a lot about Octavia Butler's uh, Pattern Master series, which includes uh, a novel called Mind of My Mind, which is about uh, telepaths uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, They're they're people who have different kinds of of ESP. Some are healers, some are telepaths, some can uh, have, you know, have telekinesis. But they, as, as individuals, they are um, often schizophrenic. They are street people. Um, they are disempowered. But when they come into contact with this one type of telepath called a pattern master, she can um, help them come into their powers and kind of um, suppress the madness that it causes. And they become super powerful. And this is all to say that the pattern master shows up in my mind of my mind um, gets together a big band of telepaths who have been living on the street and uh, who are a lot of them are racial minorities and they become very powerful and they start to take over the minds of rich white people in Beverly Hills and are able to bend them to their will and take over the city. And eventually, as we find out later in the series, they take over the world. And so it's this kind of weird reverse situation where um, you know, the mind controllers are, you know, again, the people who are the most outcast from society. And the solution is to, again, just take over in another way. And so even though it feels temporarily awesome in, in, the, in the novel that these characters are now able to control the people who once controlled them and cast them out and put them into prisons and mental institutions, um, we realize, well, actually, that might not really be the best solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of what I love about Octavia Butler is her constant like questioning of the idea of hierarchy and the idea of, of domination. I mean, I guess my final takeaway is just that I think that what a lot of science fiction, especially classic science fiction, teaches us is that sometimes you just have to be like Rowdy Roddy Piper and just blow up the machine and put a stop to it with like a giant explosion. But also... Put the frickin' glasses on. Put the glasses on. And, you know, look at what you're really being told in those ads. And I think that's, you know, that's really important is what's the real story underneath the fun entertainment? Like, what's the real message? You know, and, and when you take away the pretty picture, it just says, obey, consume. And I think so much science fiction is dedicated just to trying to teach readers and, and audiences to do that. To, to have a filter. To have a filter and and not to be fooled into the idea that just because you're thinking your own individual unique thoughts, that makes you awesome um, because you can't just stop there. You know, once you have the filter, um, you have to teach other people how to use the filter. Um, it doesn't mean that you get to become the mind controller at that point or you get to become Katniss. You have to become I guess I'm kind of saying you have to share the glasses. Make a whole bunch of glasses. Make some more glasses. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct with Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz, which is available every two weeks wherever fine podcasts can be found. 
And thanks so much to our engineer at Women's Audio Mission, Veronica Simonetti. And thanks to Chris Palmer for our theme music.